Let's uh, turn in our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. I've titled this morning's message, Who is the Greatest in the Kingdom? We looked at chapter 18, and uh, chapter 18 really is uh, the closing of Jesus' ministry there in this area of Galilee. When we get to chapter 19, verse 1, we're going to see that Jesus is going to depart from Galilee, and this is going to be the last time that he's going to be in this area. He's going to set his course towards Jerusalem and the cross. In chapter 17, we read that Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John on that mountain. And they had this mountaintop experience, really something supernatural took place. They actually saw the very deity of their Lord. But then they had to come down and they began to descend down from the mountain. They came down to what we might call the Valley of Needs. Because as soon as they got to the bottom of that mountain, Jesus was confronted with a father that brought his demon-possessed boy to Jesus. He wanted him to be delivered. It was his last hope. And we know that Jesus rebuked the demon, and that child was cured, we're told, from that very hour. He just cast the demon out by the authority that he had, he cast that demon out and he was made whole. At the same time, though, the disciples that were there, the nine that were left at the bottom of the mountain, they were there getting beat up a little bit by the scribes, by the multitudes, those that were asking them, why couldn't you cast out that demon? Aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And they were a little bewildered themselves as to why they couldn't. They had done it before, and now they couldn't. And so they came to Jesus, and they did it privately, probably because they were a little bit like, what happened, Lord? Why couldn't we cast out this demon? And Jesus' response to them was, because of your unbelief. When I read those words... And I think of my own Christian walk. There are times that I felt that I came up short. Maybe you at times feel that you come up short on faith and that ability to really believe God for the miraculous. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can still heal and he can still do the miraculous. But how much do we hinder him through unbelief? Jesus told his disciples that day, he says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, speaking about the size of a a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, and that mountain may have been the one that he just came off of, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. And he says, and nothing will be impossible for you. Those are some incredible words. Those are the same words that really should speak to our hearts. God, increase my faith. Help me to believe you, Lord. Help me just even to have the faith of a mustard seed. 
Also in chapter 17, Jesus predicted his death and his resurrection to his disciples. This wasn't the the first time, nor would it be the last. He continues to remind them of what is about to come to pass. And then we read in verse 24 that Jesus and his disciples, they came back into this village of Capernaum where Peter would learn another lesson this day by, by the Lord. He was asked by the tax collectors. We learned this last week. And he was asked by these tax collectors, does your teacher, does he pay the temple tax? And Peter responded, yes. He really spoke out of turn. He, 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 he just said, yes, he does. And then we read that as he came into that home, Jesus began to ask him questions about that. And Peter and Jesus really even knowing that conversation that went on with those tax collectors, he says, nevertheless, unless we offend them, unless we offend the tax collectors, uh, I want you to go down to the Sea of Galilee. I want you to go down there and cast your hook into the sea. And the first fish that you catch and that you pull up, I want you to open its mouth and you're going to find a coin in its mouth. You're going to take that coin in it and it's going to be enough to pay for my temple tax and yours, Peter. Incredible miracle. All of this was going on and, and, and the, the other disciples were seeing this, all of this take place. But isn't our Lord gracious? He's even covering, if you want to say, for Peter. Peter speaking out of turn. Jesus wasn't obligated to pay that tax, nor really was his disciples. They were children of the king. But he was very gracious to cover Peter. I think all of this new revelation that was transpiring really over a short period of time about Jesus' messiahship and the coming kingdom was beginning to stir within the hearts and the minds of the disciples. Peter had just days earlier, excuse me, given that great confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded to him. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Just think of how Peter felt. As he heard those words from our Lord's lips, he probably thought, you know, I said something right. I did something right this time. And I'm sure that it was a big boost to Peter's pride. As the Lord made that comment to him, he, he probably felt like he was flying high for a moment. Six days later, though, Peter, James, and John were asked by our Lord to go up on that mountain. And they were going to leave the other nine disciples down the mountain. And Jesus went up there to pray. But I believe that as they were probably going up this mountain, the nine that were left down below, there was probably some mind wars going on. Do you know what mind wars are? Those things that kind of go off in your head. uh, Why is it? That the three, only three of us, why are they going up the mountain with the Lord and why are we left here? 
What is going on here? And, and maybe they were thinking, do these guys have some special privileges that we don't have? That kind of mind wars, they happen within churches all the time. People have all these things that are kicking around in their heads. And I think that it was happening here with the disciples. But after seeing the glorified Christ and Moses and Elijah, Peter was so overwhelmed at that moment that he said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You know what I see in this is that Peter and really the rest of the disciples, they were still lacking understanding about the coming kingdom. They were beginning to learn of who the Messiah was, that strong conviction that he was their Messiah, but they really did not understand his Messiahship and what was about to come to pass in his life, nor the kingdom. You see, the disciples were still thinking that the coming kingdom was going to be an earthly kingdom where the Messiah was going to reform this world. He was going to come and he was going to make reformation on this earth. He was going to set up this political kingdom. He was going to reign over all of Israel's oppressors. That was the mindset that they had about Messiah when he comes and when he sets up his kingdom here on earth. I think by this point, the disciples had a lot of questions in their mind. I think that they were probably thinking to themselves, uh, when, he, uh, when he goes to set up his kingdom, who's going to be in the hierarchy? Who's going to be sitting next to him? Who's going to be in those places of position? And I think that they were thinking about these things for a while. What kind of government is he going to establish? Are we going to be part of that? And what place will we have in that? And that brings us to chapter 18 this morning. This is going to be Jesus' instructions to his disciples on who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Look at your Bibles, chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, or in that hour, we could say, so this is a short period of time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? Or literally it's saying, who then is greater than all others? That was the question that they had for the Lord. Who's going to be the greatest there? Mark's gospel gives us a little bit more insight into what was going on in this conversation here. It tells us that when the disciples, uh, that they were still in Capernaum, by the way, at the time that this conversation is going on. They're in Capernaum, and they're still in the house, it tells us, which is probably Peter's house. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it that you were disputing amongst yourselves on the road? Here's Jesus now in this house asking that question to his disciples. He wasn't even involved in their conversation, but he knew. 
This is another one of those omniscience that we know of our Lord. He knew what they were discussing. He knew what was stirring on in their hearts. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows what's stirring in you all the time. But we're told that when Jesus asked them that question, it says, but they kept silent. Why'd they keep silent? They were probably a little bit caught off guard. They knew what they were discussing. It would be a little embarrassing to start telling Jesus what we were having a dispute about. But they kept silent, for on the road they disputed amongst themselves who would be the greatest. And just think, I just think the Lord's knowing this already. Don't ever think that the things that you say in secret, the things that you say when you think no one else is hearing that the Lord hears, he knows every conversation, he knows every word that you say to your spouse behind closed doors. He knows all of these things. God sees those things. That should should cause us to think about what we say. Luke's gospel tells us in verse 46, it says, Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus perceiving, look at at what it says, and Jesus perceiving the thought of their heart. You see, all of this was stirring in their hearts. It was a heart issue. It began in the heart, and then it began to come out in their conversation. Who's going to be the greatest? In a sense, they were asking Jesus, is there going to be some kind of hierarchy in your kingdom? Are we going to be part of that hierarchy? Who is going to be the greatest in your kingdom, Lord? Are any of these positions going to be filled by us? Is there any of us who stands out as greatest in your eyes, Lord? The disciples, I think, though, and this is where they had it wrong, they were more concerned with honors and offices than they were with humility and servanthood. What is it about our flesh? There's something about our flesh that likes positions. Can you attest to that? There's something within us that we like positions. Is there any of us that stand out greatest in your eye? You know, we, we, we could even ask ourselves that question. That's flesh. It's not the example that we have from our Lord. It's not what he wants them to know about who's the greatest in his kingdom. But what is the bottom line about all this? What is it that would cause them to have that disputing amongst themselves as to who's the greatest? What is the word I'm looking for? Pride. Pride is at the root of that kind of a conversation. Who's going to be the greatest? How serious is the issue of pride? It's what will keep millions 
if not billions of people from entering into the kingdom of heaven? Pride. No one is going to enter into the gates of heaven with their chest all puffed out. Like I'm here because I earned it. Because I deserve it. It's only the humble. It's only those that come to Jesus Christ and say, I need forgiveness. I need you in humility. That are going to enter into the kingdom of God. Listen to the words of Jesus as he spoke to the multitude of people that were gathered one day. And this is concerning John the Baptist. They were standing there and Jesus says, and remember, John the Baptist is the forerunner of the Messiah. And Jesus says to this multitude, Assuredly, I say to you that among those born of woman... There has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. No one greater. He just said it. But but then it says, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He that's least is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus was bringing a perspective about where greatness comes from to these people. It's it's quite different than how we view greatness and how the world views greatness. I'm not sure how all of this is going to look when we get to heaven someday about how those will be rewarded and those that will have particular places within heaven. But I think we're all going to be probably surprised with who's going to receive the greater honor in heaven. We might be able to come up with a list ourselves of who we think. I mean, look at the mass amount of peoples that a Billy Graham has led to the Lord. He must be just right up there. You know, we could come up with a list of a, a number of different men or women that we might think might be the greatest. But it's not always God's perspective. It could be those people that no one ever really saw much, but they did it from the right heart. And that's what the Lord sees. And that's what honors the Lord. And they will be rewarded for that. What's interesting about this question of the disciples in chapter 18 is that when we look forward into chapter 20, verse 20, we see that it did not stop here. As a matter of fact, it was James and John's mother, Salome, who came to Jesus one day on behalf of her sons, making a request of the Lord. This is what she asked of him. She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. Oh, the heart of a mother. You know, just longing to see her, her boys do well. One on the right, one on, I'm not asking much. One on the right, one on the left. God's perspective is different, isn't it? 
Not all ambition in life is good. There is a good type of ambition that we can have. But not all ambition is good. As a matter of fact, there is a type of ambition that we might call unholy ambition. Unholy ambition, at its very least, doesn't glorify God. But here's where it gets ugly. If it's left unchecked and it's not repented of, it's actually dangerous. Having an unholy ambition in the things of God, how you serve God, and why you do what you do. When ministry becomes more about your position than it is about your service, there's a problem. When you're more content to let people serve you instead of serving them, that's not the example that our Lord gave to us. But it happens all the time. It's an unholy ambition, rising to the top, rising up in leadership, being in this place where people will see you. Jesus went on to tell James and John's mother, whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That was our Lord's response to her request. We know that our Lord, the humble servant, that we read about in Philippians chapter 2, the greatest example for us to follow. We're told that he himself made himself of no reputation. This is our Lord. He took on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. And he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. How much humility did that take? The creator of the heavens and the earth, coming to this earth and clothing himself in flesh and blood and then going to that cross to die for the sins of the world. How much humility was involved in that? But look what it says about the humility of our Lord. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, humility leads to that being glorified. And lift it up. True humility. But in response to their question in verse 1, Jesus takes a different approach in answering this question to his disciples. Look at your Bibles, verse 2. Then Jesus called 
a little child to him, and he set him in the midst of them. He's probably still in Peter's house here. Some have even thought that this child that Jesus called could have been one of Peter's children. He's in this house. Jesus, we're told, goes and sits down in in another one of the Gospels. And then he calls for this child to come over to him. And he says, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you you are converted and become as a little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is going a different way of trying to show them who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Instead of answering their question directly, Jesus used this little child, if we could say, as an object lesson. He was going to give them something visual to think about. This child was little, but he was obviously big enough that he was walking. Jesus called him over to him. He came walking over to him. But he was also small enough because we read in another one of the Gospels that Jesus took this young child up into his arms. I do that with my grandsons at six and seven years old and hold them in my arms. Here's Jesus taking this boy and bringing him up into his arms. He's given them a visual aid. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Another observation about how Jesus is addressing this question appears that he's more concerned with how these disciples would enter the kingdom of heaven than he was about their position in heaven. That's important in the way that he's responding to them here. He's showing them that whoever's going to be greatest, you need to be more concerned with how you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven than you are about your position in heaven. This is a lesson that they are learning. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, Jesus says, or you turn from your present sinful and prideful state, You see, that's where this was all stemming from, that disputing on the road. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Unless you turn from that present sinful and prideful state and become as a little child, you will by no means enter in to the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus was saying to his disciples, First things first. You need to be able to first enter to the kingdom of God and be converted from your present state before being concerned with who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Remember what Jesus taught his disciples back in the Beatitudes. Do you remember what the first Beatitude is? Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, to be poor in spirit, to, to, to realize your, your, your utter depravity, that there's no one that can save me but you, Lord. Humility. It's essential for somebody to actually enter into the kingdom of heaven. We have to come to the end of ourselves. We have to say, Lord, I have a need of a Savior. I have a need of forgiveness in my life. These words also sound very similar to the words that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, don't they? Remember, Nicodemus was a religious leader. He's somebody that everyone would have thought had it together. And he came to Jesus to inquire of him one evening. And Jesus, knowing Nicodemus' heart, said to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And he said it to him again in verse 5. He says, unless you're born again, or born of the water and of the Spirit, he says, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Jesus told Nicodemus, you'll never see or enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You need to have a spiritual rebirth. The object lesson that we have before us here is that we have the adult disciples here. These grown men standing around Jesus who is sitting down. He calls for this little child who comes across the room over to him. And this young child comes and stands in the midst of the disciples who would have been towering over him. They would have been looking down upon this child. And Jesus was showing his disciples through this picture of what they needed to have a place in God's kingdom. You need humility. You need to set your pride aside. Not only to enter it, but also to be great in the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus took this child and lifted him up into his arms... I think there was probably a sense of humility and dependence that was seen in this child. As Jesus just picked him up and held him in his arms so that the disciples could see. I don't think I have to convince any of you parents that have children here that your children are sinners. It doesn't take long for us to see that, does it, mom and dad? They're sinners at a very young age. And the Lord is not saying that this child is perfection, that he's without sin. He's simply using him as a picture of a child that is, 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 in, is in, in his natural humility. That the Lord just picks him up and the disciples are, are viewing this. They're seeing this. There's something about children in their tenderness, in the humility that they have when they're, when they're small like that, that begins to get lost when they get older. Have you noticed that? Those of you that have children that are a little older, 
that little tenderness and humility begins to fade a little bit until it gets to be like us, adults. But children's simple, their simple faith, they're real simplistic. Uh, They don't struggle so much with envy uh, or vainglory as a child. They don't struggle with those issues like adults do. They don't always have to be in first place. They're not kicking around that question, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But we do it as adults. And it's pride. Jesus goes on to say in verse 4, therefore, therefore whoever, and notice that he changes this up from you to whoever. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Just like what you're seeing here. Greatness, in God's perspective, is opposite of how the world defines greatness. I'm a grandpa, and I see with my grandchildren when they come over, I, I see these things in my own grandchildren. I love it. There's things that I see in them as a grandfather that I didn't even see in my own children. Not that it wasn't there, but I, I'm enjoying it as a grandparent. Just these things that you see in, the, in, a, in a young child. What we love about children is they... They don't try to be humble. They don't try to make that happen. They don't play the part like we do quite often. They're just who they are. Humility is something that shouldn't be forced. You can't force real humility. You can't say, well, I'm going to make myself just really look humble. Doesn't work that way. It should be something that comes out of our life as we observe the humility that is in our Lord, as He works it into your own life, as you die to self, and that humility comes forth out of your own life. It's a God thing, it's what God works in us, it's a mindset that we take on, it's something that's not natural. To be just humble and to walk in humility. We have to wrestle against that pride, don't we? It's part of our flesh. But true humility requires death to self. It's letting go of all of your rights. It's lowering all of my unholy ambitions. To the one who is able to humble himself like his Lord, it's to that person that the Lord is going to deem as greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Those who have learned to serve, those who are willing to give up their rights and to be like that, that's who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then goes on 
from the humility of this little child to begin to speak about a spiritual child of God, this could actually be a young child, but it could also be an adult. Look what he says in verse 5. Whoever receives one little child like this, in my name receives me. Whoever receives one little child like this, in my name receives me. Whoever receives one of his humble followers in humility. When you go out and you share your faith and the message of the gospel and you tell people about Christ, and if somebody realizes their need and they receive what you're telling them, they receive Christ. They receive that message. And the Lord will reward them for that. You see, the world often rejects. They, they actually despise sometimes Christians. Have you ever noticed that? Not everybody in this world likes you as a Christian. Why? Because quite often this earmark of humility comes out in a believer's life. You're kind of gentle. You're a little different in your approach and how other people do things. You're not always pushing ahead to get ahead of everybody else, to get to the front of the line. And people see it and they deem it as weakness. I was turned down from a job years ago because I was very outspoken about my faith in my workplace. And I said, you'll never make it in this sales position because you know what? You're not the kind of person that's going to step on any toes. That's what they said to me. He'd probably get sued for that today, but it wasn't then. He could say that to me. The world that we live in tells us to be different than who we should be. We're, we're to be these humble servants. And Jesus says those are going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus continues in verse 6 by giving a warning. He starts with a but. But whoever causes one of these little ones, speaking about my children, who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were drowned in the depths of the sea. Wow. These little ones... I don't think are just speaking about little children, but even all lowly believers, all humble and lowly believers, all who believe in him, and those that are maybe even young in their faith, they're brand new to the Lord. They're maybe weak in their walk with the Lord. They haven't really grown. They haven't been a Christian that long. They're still learning all the implications of their faith. They don't know all those things yet. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, causes them. 
Those who would seek to turn away from the simple faith of those who have put their trust in Jesus are the ones who come under this warning from our Lord. There's people in this world through their lifestyle, through the way they live, through the, what, what their way of, of dealing, they have drawn believers away. It makes me think of the many young men and women who were raised in Christian homes. And they, as they were growing up, they were taught the scriptures. They, they grew up in a home where they learned about the Lord. And they were, they were actually strong in their faith. And then mom and dad sent them off to college, sent them off to university. And when they got there, they realized that there was a lot of seducers there at that university. There were a lot of people that were there that would draw them away. Draw them away from the simple faith that they were raised in. You see, sin and evil takes on many forms. The enemy knows how to do it. Do you know how many college and university students that were raised in Christian homes that they actually walked away from the Lord when they got into college? Many. Jesus gives them a strong warning. It's actually a strong warning of condemnation to those who would do that. To anyone who would do this, the Lord is giving this strong warning. I would say, look out. Jesus says it would be better for him if a millstone, that's, a, that's that one of those grinding stones that had a hole in the middle. If it were hung around your neck, and you would be thrown into the sea. You're just going to sink to the bottom. That you would be drowned in the depths of the sea. Quite the warning. Jesus is warning, don't mess with my children. Jesus then gives another warning to those who would lead others into sin in verse 7. He says, woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. This word woe that we read in Matthew's gospel here, it's really, it's casting a verdict. But it's also an expression of sorrow that the Lord would have to pronounce a woe. In chapter 11, Jesus pronounced those woes against the cities, remember? Those cities that were, they had seen the mighty works of the Lord, but they refused to repent. And the Lord says, woe to you. And he says it here, woe to the world because of offenses. And woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Can you imagine the day 
when this world, those that have led astray through their own lifestyle, through their own way of living, led children of God into sin, what it will be like on that day. We think of those that have been brutalized. We look at uh, uh, what's going on with ISIS and all the brutality that they're doing towards even children. And we think of all of the Christians that have been martyred millions and millions through the centuries in the name of the Lord. But this woe is not just for these, but it's for those who would even seduce, for those that would even entice God's children by their own sin. And it's not even directly taking them and asking them to follow their sin. It's actually them just practicing their sin in front of them and them being drawn to their sin. That Jesus is saying, woe to the man by whom the offense comes. I looked up online, how many sins can we find in the Bible? I found one list. Uh, The list of sins that we can find just in the New Testament is over 600 sins. When you read through that list, it's ugly. That's just in the New Testament. Over 600 sins that are listed. Woe to the man by whom the offense comes. That your life or that lifestyle would lead one of God's children away from him. Then Jesus goes on to warn them about the importance of avoiding sin at all cost. He's saying this to his disciples, remember. These are all Jesus' words. Jesus uses a radical description for his disciples here. He uses this radical description to make a very clear point to us even this morning. It's very similar to what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount about uh, the eye and where the eye is attached to. It's attached to the heart. He says in verse 8 to his disciples, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. In other words, there's action on our part. Cut it off and cast it away from you. It is better for you to enter in to life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Both the everlasting fire and hell fire are the same same place. It's the same destiny. One is just saying that 
It's everlasting. The other one is just telling us the location, hell. But simply put, Jesus is not saying mutilate yourself, literally cut off your hand or pluck your eye out. He's not saying that. He's using something, he's using this hyper kind of exaggerated way of making a point so that they would get the point of how serious it is of what he's saying. You know that the monks that hid away in the caves, the ones that went and castrated themselves, so that they thought if they castrate themselves and then go separate themselves from the world and hide out in a cave, they won't struggle with any sexual temptations. Well, we know that that doesn't work because the issue is right here, and it's right here. And that's what the Lord always wants to deal with, with the heart, with the mind. What Jesus is saying is that We need to take decisive action to get rid of sin. Have you ever had to do that? Take a decisive action to rid yourself of something that you were struggling with. I think that this kind of wording is what the Lord is trying to convey to us. Take concisive or decisive action to rid yourself of that sin. Does that mean that it's all up to me? No, we need to call upon the Lord for his strength, his power to say no to sin. But I do have a part. I do have a part in that I need to to do whatever it takes. That's why he says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Be decisive. Make a determination that the TV that I have or the computer, because I'm hooked up into pornography or whatever it might be, that God, if it means that I need to take and get rid of the internet, that's what I need to do. If I need to get rid of the TV set because I keep falling to it, that's what I need to do. Take a decisive action. Do something. That's what Jesus is saying, I believe, in these words. If we have a drinking problem, don't go to the bar. Why just go there to hang out? I don't drink anymore. No, don't go to the bar. If if I've got a lustful eye, what do I do with it? Lord, maybe we just put blinders on. I don't know. We've got to take a decisive action. I mean, don't you see how clear these words are of our Lord? He's saying, take action. There's a verse in the book of Corinthians that I think we should all have memorized. It's 1 Corinthians 10.13. Maybe some of you do. Paul wrote this. He says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common demand. In other words, there's nothing that you've ever been tempted with or struggled with that is unique just to you. You're the only one. 
No, there's hundreds and thousands of other people that struggle with the same sin that you do. But here's the key to this verse. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but with the temptation is also will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. He's able to make a way of escape. I like that wording. How many of you have been able to grab onto through the Lord's help, through him giving you a, been able to, to see the way of escape? You did something radical actually to change your circumstances so that you would not keep falling to that sin. And then all of a sudden you had a victory shout. Thank you, Lord. You gave me the way of escape. Uh, It doesn't mean I couldn't fall to it again. But you gave me the way of escape. I'm standing strong, Lord. God will always be faithful to that humble child of God that comes before him and says, Lord, help me. Deliver me. Give me the way of escape. He's given us all the tools we need. Everything we need for life and godliness. He's given it already to us. As Christians, we should be going from victory to victory. Not from defeat to defeat. But Jesus says, and we're drawing to a close here, Verse 10, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. This has been a verse that has stirred some different opinions. Recently, somebody in this church just asked me, do we have a guardian angel? Some people believe that we do have a guardian angel. Each one of us. Others say there's no proof in Scripture. I don't find really much proof in Scripture that we all have our own individual guardian angel that watches over us. There are times that I've gotten hurt and he didn't help me, at least in that moment. I don't know that we all have a guardian angel, but the words that we read here, they're definitely words of comfort, aren't they? Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now we know that angels, they, uh, they do God's work. We see that all the way through scripture, various places and different ways that angels are used by the Lord. But here... These angels, what we do read from this verse is that they are in heaven always. They have immediate access to God. Uh, they're, they're always in the presence of the Father. And in a sense, they act against one of God's children. They, they go on our behalf before the Father. And I don't know that they're individual to each one of us, But they are definitely words of comfort. Their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. 
But then Jesus goes on and he asks the disciples a question. He says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. And then he says to his disciples, What do you think? What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? If he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This tells me something about the very character of our Lord. Those that have gone astray. Those of us that maybe even have prodigals. We raised our children. And they've gone astray. But you can trust that you have a heavenly father. That loves your child more than you could ever love them yourself. And he actually goes out of his way and makes every effort to go out and find the one and do what he needs to do to bring that one back into the fold. He seeks out the strays. Isn't that incredible? He doesn't just let them go, as we often do. He seeks them out and seeks to draw them back. If you have been in that place yourself where you've gone astray, you've probably experienced the loving, gracious hand of God wooing you back to him. You know that, you know what it's like. And you, and you came to that place where you said, once again, Lord, forgive me. And you know, as soon as you say that with a real heart, a true heart, do you know how quick that relationship is restored? Like that. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.